One of the things I've always found interesting is that several creators who worked at Star Trek, including most obviously Ira Stephen Bear, uh, always had a really big problem with the whole Earth is Paradise thing. Now, I say that's funny because I myself have been against the whole humans are perfect idea. You know, I'm, I'm fairly anti-Roddenberry Box, as I've said before, mostly because how I think it can be taken to an extreme. But I'm fine with the base concept. In fact, we actually talked about this back in um, The Bonding over in TNG. A lot of viewers actually gave comments in a similar light. You know, they were cool with the Roddenberry Box as long as it wasn't taken to an extreme. I suppose you could say that same about most things, really. But I bring that up because one of the things I've noticed is that Bear in particular always had a very fervent desire to basically tear down the, the paradise. In fact, one of the things he does, or they, I suppose I should say, but he gets credit for this as well, have been doing very deliberately is inserting the word paradise into specific moments across Star Trek's history, across DS9, to call attention to that. And if they do that properly, as in only mention a specific word when it's relevant to a specific concept, you form a narrative pattern, which has been done here. Paradise, usually referring to Earth. They mentioned it uh, when Sisko was ranting about the Maquis. It was mentioned during the, uh, the home front issue back on Earth. And it's being mentioned here, and it will come up again later as well. Now, you'll also notice that the big speech Eddington gives is one that Cisco does not give any counter-argument for. He doesn't try to challenge it or, or push back against it whatsoever. He just says, well, I'm pissed, so I'm coming after you. Thereby passively showing that even the main character thinks that the villain, Eddington, has a point here. Anyways, I only bring that up because that by itself has caused a lot of friction in Star Trek fans over the years. As ever, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts about this... <sighs> I don't want to be exaggerative, this desire to bring down the paradise, basically, on, on behalf of Iris Stephen Bear and other people. Now, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. What do you guys think? What do you guys think? Now, I'm going to talk about the B-plot first, because it's lesser and there's almost nothing to talk about there. Uh, Garrick and Zeal. Now, one of the things I find amusing is that Garrick obviously does want to interact with her in some way or another. Not in a romantic sense, no. I mean, just, she's a Cardassian, and he's a Cardassian. This isn't the first time that's happened, if you're paying attention. The Cardassian boy, several episodes, several, like last season, I think, at this point, where who was being raised by Bajoran parents, Garrick took immediate interest, like, oh, hello, just because it was nice to see another Cardassian. Now... I know that I kind of rant about the whole your people thing that Star Trek tends to push, but I also have to admit, there's something nice about seeing someone or trying to connect to someone when you're in a group of strangers, basically, right? It's not that hard to understand. How many times have you been to a party, like a, 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 you know, a college party or a holiday party at the office or a family party, and you've just been kind of awkward and un, you know just kind of over there because you're not really friends with most of the people there, but then you spot someone you know and it's like, oh, beeline, Right? Because that's someone you know. It's the same general concept, at least I think it is. So I understand Garrick's d desire to try and get along with other Cardassians. And then, of course, he you know, starts talking with Zeal. And uh, <laughs> I do like how he jokes with her in the, uh, the turbo lift as kind of an interrogative. Okay, so I could try to run and flee if you were going to get me, but security might not be here in time. It's very clever and very Garrick, because what he could do is say something more honest and blunt. <clears throat> do I have anything to fear from you? Because that's what he really wants to know. 
in response, <laughs> in response, she could have then said no, and he, could have, and he could have reciprocated. But instead, he tries to approach it sideways, laterally. You know. I also like how Zial basically just wanted a friend. Her eagerness and happiness at the idea that he accepts this this visit to go to this warm area and just kind of relax there for a bit, and as she says later, to learn more about Cardassia speaks volumes about how lonely she is on the station. Unfortunately, we don't get a lot of characterization for Zial until, uh, I want to say, towards the end of Season 5. I think that's when that all really starts coming to a head. But we do get impressions, little snippets of the idea that she is very lonely, that she probably interacts with Kira, and that's probably it, that she doesn't have any friends or relations, that people are still ostracizing her. After all, she's a Cardassian, or at least she certainly looks like one, right? So you can kind of get how she would be eager to try and reach out to someone, anyone, especially since that someone knows Cardassia and can tell her about it. I, I get that, and I'm with that. Then, of course, Garrett comes in. It's like, hi, and Zeal says, yeah, so Kira and uh, my father both told me that you're pretty terrible. And I love Garrett's response. Oh, they're right. <laughs> and she says, yeah, I don't care. I'm lonely. I'd like to hear about home. So you're welcome to stay or not. And she just lays back down on the thing. Also, as a quick aside, I love the idea that Cardassians would find slabbed rock next to a heating source to be relaxing. Something about that is just just alien enough while being understandable enough that it, it, it matches. It's, it's good. I like it. I like it. Anyways, that's it for the B plot. Let's switch over to the A plot. Why does, why does scent go through these doors? I know that's such a strange thing to comment on. I suppose it's a Cardassian thing. Because you'd, I'd like to think that bulkheads have the ability to be you know, airtight and sealed, at least to, uh, to some extent or another. And yet apparently people in the hallway and the nearby rooms can smell his cooking. I guess we'll just have to see what the Cisco's cooking. Anyways, so Cassidy comes in. <laughs> they talk. Cisco finds out the evidence. And what I love about it is Cisco's initial reaction to Cassidy working with the, with the Maquis is, Impossible! No way, it could never be true. Cisco's perspective, Cisco's position here is a really wonderful uh, torture, I guess is the word I want to use. Because Cisco himself is a man who believes very strongly in his ideals, his morality, his ethics. And he uses those to guide most of his existence. Well, he can and will do his duty, and he will try to stay along the lines of the law, you know, in terms of being a Starfleet officer. He ultimately will usually put what he believes to be right above that, and he has done so many times. I actually kind of brought this up passively in a previous episode, the... Um, Oh, I don't remember the one, but it's the Mirror Universe episode we just had. I can't remember the name of it. Where he decided to go ahead and stay and help out the Terrans, even though he was no longer being, you know, blackmailed into doing so, because he wanted to help. Because it was just in his nature to try and help these people. In, in fact, to be 100% blunt, as weird as this may sound, one of the strangest things I've always found about Deep Space Nine is that Cisco does not support the Maquis. Like, actually support them. I, I, I definitely get that he has, you know, uh, sympathies for them and their situation, but the fact that he's never actually supported the Maquis has, has always been something I feel to be completely blunt to be out of character. I get why they don't do that. That would be a huge shake-up, right? 
I mean, that would be insane having a marquee member being a high-ranked member of a, of a Star Trek show. That's ludicrous. <clears throat> but in all seriousness, I think that they should have gone that direction. I think there's a lot they could have done with that presentation. It especially would have made the Maquis more relevant, uh, which, well, to be perfectly blunt, the Maquis certainly had a good stint, but as of this moment in time have effectively stopped being a narrative point in, in Star Trek, in Deep Space Nine especially. The Maquis will come up several times in the future, but in each case, I'm going to be telling you about this when we get to those episodes. So they didn't know what to do with the Maquis, so they brought them into this episode, and they didn't know what to do with the Maquis, so they killed them off, and just blah, blah, blah. You know, they had no idea where to go with the Maquis. So, you know, do something with it. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So Cisco understands, is what I'm trying to say. He gets Cassidy's perspective. He, he sympathizes with her. Oh, also, he really likes sleeping with her, so that's part of the thing, too. But I do, I do think we could say there is some genuine love and, and friendship and connection between Cisco and Cassidy. I feel like that's a fair assessment, right? So obviously, this is a difficult situation for him. And what's funny is he, he at every turn, decides to act as though he's showing her favoritism, but ultimately isn't. He still follows his, his orders. He still does what he must do in order to be a Starfleet officer. This is going to sound like a truly strange question, but has anyone else ever gotten the impression that the Maquis were mishandled in-universe too? That the Maquis should have basically become a nation? a separate nation, independent, and then, as a diplomatically recognized nation, reached out to the Federation for aid, rather than trying to, you know, steal off of Federation ships or poach off of, you know, Cardassian ships or whatever. Now, you could argue that the price for that would be them discontinuing operations against the Cardassians, and that's possible. But that could have been an acceptable trade-off to the Maquis as a people for regular aid, especially in regards to medical supplies, food, replicators, in order for them to have this assistance when it comes to developing their own colony, you know? And, well, just... I, I mean, I don't know. I feel like this situation it was a bit weird because one of the things that has always bothered me is the Maquis are not the bad guys. Oh, sure, they do some bad things here and there, but for the most part, the Maquis are... Freedom fighters rather than terrorists, right? And you know what I mean by that distinction. They actually tend to go fairly far out of the way to not hurt civilians, to not ta attack un unattended targets, and to not go after things that are not part of their business. As Eddington himself flat out says, you leave us alone and we'll leave you alone. We really have no beef with the, with the Federation, okay? Let's just, just walk away from this. But the problem is, the Federation, especially Starfleet, cannot ignore the fact that the Maquis exist by preying off of both the Federation in particular and neutral states in general. That's how they get you know, their supplies and their munitions and their materials in order to continue their, let's call it what it is, war against the Cardassians. Uh, this is skipping ahead a little bit, but later on, Siska will make a comment that the, the Maquis should have been pushing for a negotiated peace rather than, than inch, inching towards a military victory. And honestly, I kind of feel I agree with Sisko on that one. A military victory on behalf of the Maquis really was not the right move. They simply do not have the anything necessary to really capitalize on military conquest. Even a military victory, like is stated. That's just... I, I don't know, I don't even know I have a good analogy for that. 
Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So you can see Cisco's perspective. He really doesn't want her to be part of the Maquis. And you can tell he does sympathize with the Maquis. If anything, that makes it weirder that he gets so angry at Eddington. In fact, if I could be 100% blunt, and I hate to speak negative of a show that is so beloved, but I'm always honest with you guys, I think the Cisco-Eddington thing was a mistake. So, at the end of this episode, Cisco gets angry at Eddington and just says, screw you, basically. You know. Now, I point that out because, again, I feel like that is in, not because Cisco feels betrayed, although that is certainly part of it, but more because Cisco, out of character, in, in, you know, as a, from a writing perspective, can't give a, be, be shown to give an, a good counter-argument to Eddington's counter-Starfleet argument because that was the agenda that was being pushed out of character. Now, that's not supposition. We know that that agenda was being pushed. My supposition is that Cisco's lack of response is to promote the agenda that was being pushed. Make sense? So this is partial, partial speculation here. And because they put that in there, they had to make Cisco super anti-Eddington, which would later lead to uh, For the Uniform and... Um, oh, God, I can't think of the name of the third one. There's a third one that follows this arc. And I really feel that was a mistake. Good episodes, really, legitimately. This episode's good, For the Uniform is good, and uh, Blaze of Glory, that's the third one. All three of those are good episodes. I just, my opinion, as ever, I look forward to hearing your guys, and I'm sure most of you disagree with me. So there's this interesting scene where they're pacing on the Defiant, and Worf, well, funnily enough, Worf and O'Brien have an interesting discussion about their opinions on the Maquis. Now, this was a good inclusion, in my opinion, because... Everyone in Starfleet, to some extent or another, has to be anti-Maquis. Duh. It's orders. But all of them are going to have their own opinions on that. Worf is very anti-Maquis. And I find that interesting. Because Worf's opinion is that to become a criminal is dishonorable. To become a terrorist is dishonorable. <laughs> I get why Worf feels that way. And Worf does tend to be fairly... <sighs> black and white when it comes to the way he approaches things. So that makes sense. O'Brien, who has been through a lot more crap in his life, and I'll remind you, is still suffering from 20 years of hell. No, I'm not letting that go. Is someone who, because, yeah, no, I get it. These poor guys, they were just sitting there, and then the Federation cuts them off, and now they're screwed, right? What would you have done? And I like how Worf has no real answer to that. He just says, I would not have become a terrorist. And then, of course, they ask Eddington what he thinks. Now, I'm going to go ahead and admit something. For those of you not aware, uh, back in the day, there was a lot of news groups and mail, uh, message boards going around, you know, uh, mailing lists, too, for people who were speculating on Star Trek as it was coming out. This was kind of a new thing, at least for some of us, because the Internet was just starting to really become a thing back in the 90s. And, you know, it was the first time people were able to coordinate with fans across a large distance. So I could actually speculate with people across the country rather than just, you know, my friends at school, basically. So it was really cool. And we were all speculating about what was going on. And there was this really recurrent three theme, just constant, that Eddington was a changeling. It, it was a near nonstop thing. It was so common, in fact, that most people seemed to just automatically presume that Eddington was, in fact, a changeling. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and spoil this for you. Eddington is not a changeling. and never was. But even after this episode came out, people were like, Aha! This is proof that he's a changeling. G you know, given what he just did and what he's going for. <laughs> I find that amusing, but I point it out because it, you could be forgiven for assuming that the changeling thread is basically gone since it hasn't come up since the home front thing, which was way back at the beginning of the season. Uh, don't worry, it'll come back. 
But I, but yeah, people were like, oh my god, obviously. But when I saw this episode, I, I'll admit, I also thought he was a changeling. I'll freely admit that. But what I also have to say is, the moment they turned to Eddington and said, what's your opinion of the Maquis? And he deflects. Just straight up deflects. I was like, it, he, it's him. And Mom was like, what? I'm like, it's him. He's the Maquis agent. Then she was like, Eddington? <laughs> yeah. Now... I didn't call that Cassidy was actually a Maquis and, and was basically just being used by Eddington. Probably part of why Cisco's upset, by the way. But, yeah, I just he just totally deflects the question. Don't give me that crap. That is a non-answer. And he's either doing that <clears throat> because he's trying to avoid, you know, answering one way or the other because he's a Maquis agent, or because of the fact that he doesn't want to get involved in the argument, in which case there's other ways to deflect on that front. Anywho... There's this really good scene where Cisco goes to Cassidy and says, let's just go to Ryazan. She says, nah, I can't. Now, she later says that she, you know, he was obviously weird and she didn't quite know, but she suspected he would be following her. I kind of find myself wondering at what point, if indeed at all, and as ever, want to hear your thoughts on this too, do you think she figured out that he was onto her? Or do you think that she suspected that he was onto her in that moment? Let's just drop everything and go to Ryzen. Everything he says is filled with subtext. Everything. I actually wonder what would have been done if she had said yes. You'll also notice, by the way, that she flat out says, in a moment of honesty, that, yeah, she's, she's transporting medical supplies. And as was mentioned earlier, this is both food and medical supplies that she's transiting. That makes a lot of sense. It's a lot easier to support a terrorist organization by giving them food and medicine than it is to give them weapons. This is also part of what makes Eddington's crime more severe than Cassidy's crime, at least in the eyes of the audience in this episode, because he gives them replicators, which, well, let's be honest, that's an incredibly dangerous tool, isn't it? So, anywho, industrial replicators, too, no less. So, Odo deduces his way through things as usual. And then the episode cuts to Eddington, who is taking over. Eddington then effortlessly, you know, makes his way through the situation, gets away. They leave Cassidy behind. That was fun. And Eddington... <laughs> Finally, it gets to the point where Eddington calls up, and then there's the speech. The speech. Now, what I find funniest is this episode actually dodges a question. Why? Why would Eddington go to this? This is actually deliberate, and I know it's deliberate since I have access to the guide right there and I've got access to the internet and interviews and whatnot. But also, this makes so much sense. This is a rare moment of nuance where a character does not announce their intentions and motivations off to, you know, just, I do this because of this. But rather, we know why he did this, and there's two big reasons why. The first and most important reason is because he wanted command. He actually talked about this back in The Adversary. You remember that, right? Everyone, let's be honest, most people join Starfleet to sit in the big chair. But you don't get to be in command wearing a gold uniform. And in fact, I think there's actually like one exception to that ever. So he's totally got a point there. And I talked about that back in The Adversary. He also, when it's mentioned, well, maybe you should just try shifting commands, you know, shifting career sh uh, lanes, he just kind of eh, shrugs and dodges it off. It is my opinion that as of that moment... Eddington was already a part of the Maquis. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think Eddington really did actually have not just sympathy for the Maquis, which he definitely has, but also a desire to be that kind of person, to prove that he can be the captain. 
He'll never be the captain of a starship in the way that, you know, any kind of Federation officer would be. But he will be the captain of his own people. And he'll be the captain of his own destiny. And he'll be able to show and blah, 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 blah. That's just my take on that. I, again, curious what your thoughts are. But the second motive is also interesting. Now, this is kind of an out-of-character motive. But he mentions how disgusted he is with the Federation. I do think that is the second motive stated outright, in contrast to what I just earlier said. In other words, that it's not that he is pro-Maquis so much as he is anti-Federation policy on Maquis. In other words, that he is so disgusted by the way that Starfleet specifically deals with the Maquis and interacts with them, that that just made him lean even further in that direction. <laughs> Which ironically would make Eddington one of the least believing, you know, least zealous members of the Maquis, because most people who join the Maquis from Starfleet do so because they believe in the cause. It is my take, my interpretation, that Eddington doesn't give so much as not care about the cause. It's, so it's not he's against the cause so much he doesn't care about the cause. He just wanted everything else, you know? And you do have to admit, this whole thing has been completely mishandled in-universe and out, if I'm being blunt. Like I said, later on, the Maquis will just basically be, oh yeah, those exist. Uh, let's do an episode. <laughs> and then Cassidy comes back. Now, that's actually interesting. She, of course, lets her crew off. Of course she does. But, of course, she comes back. Now, one of the things that is true in real life, but also is true in, in fiction, in, Star, in Starfleet in particular, is they tend to be more lenient towards people who turn themselves in, who are willingly cooperative. That's a thing, right? Good behavior and all that. Now, spoilers, Cassidy will be back after this, about a year from now, roughly, in the episode Rapture. And I've actually mentioned that episode before because it's kind of a relevant Cisco episode. And so she will finally be returning to him and to the show proper. And I kind of pseudo made fun and pseudo didn't about how anti-continuity DS9 just kind of kept being about guest stars. But that's a, effectively over as of this point. Most of the characters from this point onwards will continue to be recurring characters, even the guest stars. And in fact, we'll see a couple of old guest stars come back as well. And Cassidy is a good example of this. She is basically a major player on the show and will be in until season seven. Spoilers. I do like that. In fact, I'm very in favor of that. That's one of the things I enjoy about recurring fiction, especially a show that is so stationary like Deep Space Nine. Having a recurring cast helps add to that investment in the stationary position, both from a narrative perspective and the literal physical perspective, at least in my opinion. So I really like the fact that she'll be back. But I also like the fact that she came back, not just for leniency, I mean, she could just gotten away, but because she came back for him. Because, again, she's in a pretty difficult spot too, just like Cisco was. She obviously did believe in her cause, truly, legitimately. She wanted to give medicine to people who needed it. Bam! You can't tell me Cassidy Yates doesn't believe in that. But she also really does care about Cisco and his position and, well, wants to be a part of him and his family. Legitimately, truly wants to be a part of him. So she comes back knowing the consequences she will have to face just so he knows she's willing to come back for him. That's commitment right there. And so it's also gratifying that that is effectively paid off. Like I said, that she eventually comes back. I remember when I was first seeing this, I was actually pissed. I was like, oh, come on, they're just going to haul her off to jail? Because what I was thinking is that we'd never see her again. That's the end of Cassidy 8. It was really gratifying to see her finally come back in uh, Season 5. Anyways, that's all I've got. As ever, looking forward to your guys' comments. I'll see you next time.